came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning. This is the Cats Roundtable, New York edition. And we have a great show for you today. We have Governor David Patterson, Congressman Peter King, Dr. Sky, letting us know what's going on up there. Captain Ed Mamet on the paroles on the police department. Andrew Sabin, saving the lions. Commissioner Bill Bratton and current commissioner Edward Gabon. And let's start off with my friend Michael Stoller and the Stoller Report. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. I'm very fortunate today to have two guests of, uh, of honor to participate on the show. I have Brian Kelly, who's the president of development for the Gotham Organization, and I have the Reverend A.R. Bernard, operating with 37,000 members at the CCC in East New York. Thank you for both being here. So, Reverend, we didn't expect to have a reverend who's that involved with real estate, but let's talk a little bit about what you're doing with the Gotham Organization. First, Michael, let me say it's great to be with you in the studio. It's been quite some time since uh, we've had an interview, and uh, it's, it's just great to be here. So since then, we've taken a fresh look at our 10 and a half acres in Brooklyn and decided that we want to do something significant for the community, and that required the right partnership. And we went through a process of some two to three years and met a gentleman by the name of Brian Kelly, along with the Gotham organization, David Pickett, and the whole team. And we found someone who uh, shared our values, our philosophy, and someone that we could work together to do something new and innovative. In fact, it's called the Innovative Urban Village. And I think it's one of the first, uh, the only kind in the country, I believe, right? That is correct. Uh, and this kind of a partnership, faith-based partnership with, uh, you know, a developer, uh, very established developer in New York City. Uh, it's 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 wonderful. It's extensive. Brian, uh, time for you to weigh in on this. Reverend, thank you and Michael for having me here. I echo what Pastor said is this is an opportunity on a national level to create a model which we believe can be replicated throughout the country, not to just address housing issues, but to address issues in equity, create social mobility. And that's through larger comprehensive planning that brings things to the table that address community needs that have been shared with us by elected officials, community members, uh, civic organizations to sort of fill the void. And those voids are things such as the need for 24-7 daycare, addressing the digital divide through a cyber cafe, creating employment opportunities that are not just about collecting a wage, but creating a path forward, essentially establishing upward mobility. And, and then many times over the decades, housing has been created where it's let's create affordable housing and it's all one income band. And, and from our perspective, this is an opportunity in East New York and to be replicated throughout the country to create diversity and mobility for those of the lowest income means to those who are of the middle class who have been just alienated 
significantly, and this is really a template to address. Have you looked at East New York before, the, the Reverend's Project? Uh, we have throughout Brooklyn, but at the end of the day, opportunities arise through relationship and identifying need and partnerships that really work at the end of the day. And when we looked at creating a village here, the sort of moniker was that the village is something that addresses a, a greater need, which isn't just housing. It's about establishing a community that would be more livable, walkable, civic. For example, the innovative urban village is going to have a three-acre open space that we call like a campus quad with a performing arts center adjacent to it, a workforce development center, and 24-7 childcare for... I think the 24-7 is unique, so the the parents could have upward mo- mobility in different jobs, so at least somebody's there, because childcare normally is, you know, eight, eight hours, and now you're providing 24-7. And Michael, in addition to that, we, we always heard from the community that intergenerational housing was critical, as well as creating equity through affordable home ownership. So if you were to look at some renderings of our plans, we have masonettes lighting the interiors of our planned streets with front stoops to create that civic sense of ownership by the larger community of the village and to integrate it within East New York as a whole. How about the transportation? You have, you're planning shuttles? We'll have a shuttle that operates in peak a.m. and evening hours, Monday to Friday. We'll have a loop on Saturdays and as well as to assist with mobility uh, during Sunday church hours. And, Michael, the, the four pillars that really support the project philosophically is environment, people, programs, and sustainability. And to partner with Gotham, uh, of course, with Brian directly. It was finding a partner who appreciated those four pillars. And that's how the project developed. And we're looking forward to Shovels in the Ground in 2024. You recently obtained financing? We closed um, on a facility for pre-development, which enabled us. We rezoned the entire master plan. We completed around Thanksgiving of 2022. We expect to close the first phase um, this coming March which would generate nearly 400 new residences, which would include our fresh food grocery store. And the second phase we expect to close by the end of 2024, which would be for the next 500 residences. And that would include things like the 24-7 childcare, the grocery, workforce development Okay, with, with regard to the FRESH program, could you briefly explain what the FRESH grocery pro- program is? FRESH grocery is really intended to incubate locally grown vegetables and fruits. Well, you know, I, there was, was a few years ago, Michael, that we were looking at uh, creating indoor farming. You know, there's hydroponic farming, um, aeroponic farming. And how could we create some type of local connection where we can bring fresh groceries? You know what happens in communities like East New York. You, you have supermarkets that tend to exploit the people, inferior products or high-priced products. We want to introduce healthy living through healthy eating. Thanks, Brian, and thank you, Reverend. See you next week. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. What is today is former Governor David Patterson. So many things are happening in New York, Governor. I mean, uh, where do you want to start? Well, John, last week I had uh, fallen on my own sword and decided to support some legislation that I had criticized earlier in the month. And today I think I'm going to do it again because I've been noticing or feeling something over the past couple of weeks, and I finally checked it out. And it turns out that traffic levels in New York City are now exactly about the same as they were 
in January, February, and March of 2020, which is right as the pandemic starts. So for April, May, and June, those traffic levels are the same. Now, that changes the conversation a little bit from what I framed last week because I felt that you wouldn't be able to generate the revenues in the city to pay for congestion pricing. But Governor Hochul can go forward now because she knows that these people are in the city. Just She just has to find a way to get them to spend money. Now, one of the other issues that this kind of confronts is just the whole discussion of how it affects cars coming into the city and the other places they drive. I don't think the New Jersey lawsuit has any standing because it's something that New York State is doing in New York State. Vito Pascal, though, the Staten Island borough president, his case is a little different because Staten Island is a part of New York City. I don't think he'll win, but I think that he has a much better chance. Well, I, I really do think it'll, you know, it'll hurt uh, New York City, Manhattan, one of the five boroughs, because uh, already uh, the traffic exists on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but Mondays and Fridays, it's a lot less. I don't know, John. I, I was out there <laughs> this past Monday, and it was uh, horrific. I don't know what actually caused that, because usually, you're right, during the early part of the summer, a lot of people were taking Monday off and, and taking Friday off and basically working those middle three days. But I think that that's picking up now, and that would at least give the proponents the opportunity maybe to hit their goal. I think that the issue will just be uh, whether or not that level of traffic will remain when it goes into effect. Well, time will tell, but, uh, you know, it's like uh, I said on the uh, on the show the other day, Manhattan looks like it has one nail in the coffin, and uh, a second nail is not going to help. You're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> well, I, you know, I had thought that the traffic levels were significantly lower, but it appears now that it's returned to where it was. The question now is, will the revenue generation return to where it is, and how far off is it? Because I thought that's why it wouldn't work, but i got to say, Governor Hochul has demonstrated in the last few months some real leadership. Now, let's just remember, she's the only governor that ever came into office and had to run in her first year. I didn't have to do it, and neither did any of her other predecessors. But now I think she's really taking the reins and trying to put her imprint on this because one of the things she knows, and we've talked about it on the show, is there's been a significant drop in tax receipt collections that controller Tom DiNapoli has uh, actually written about in a couple of uh, newspapers. And so she's got to find a way to come up with those revenues one way or the other. And in this situation, it might give her a shot. She can't call the legislature back, I don't think she can, to cut programs or tax the rich. I don't think that's an option that she would take at this point. She could in the future. But for now, this is a revenue-generating source that she can use effectively and, you know, perhaps thwart the out-year budget gap that we might have otherwise. Like I said, Governor, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> well, John, I'm glad I'm on this show because not everybody lets you have an opinion. Yeah, you can have your opinion. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with you, but uh, it is what it is. Anything else you want to talk? Do you think crime is getting any better? I think 
some of the crime statistics, gun crimes are down. But as I've said, what you have to fight when you're fighting crime is the fear of it that people have. You know, maybe the fear is less than what it really is. But there have been some, you know, pretty horrible situations that we've had to deal with in the city, people being shoved in front of subways and that kind of thing. And it's really not the fault of any of the leaders of the city. But as a leader, sometimes the best way to lead people walk behind them. If people are feeling that, you just kind of go with it. And until you can reach some statistics, as they were able to do in the late 90s and, and then again under Mayor Bloomberg, and hopefully that'll happen again. Well, Governor David Patterson, thank you so much for coming on this Sunday morning, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thanks a lot, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Congressman Peter King, and uh, so many things are going on. Uh, Congressman King, 28 years in Washington, you ever seen so many things happening like this? No, I really haven't, John. I've been there through... You know, impeachments of Bill Clinton, of Donald Trump, been there through 9-11, which, of course, is you know, in a category all by itself. But also, I've never seen such flagrant corruption as what we appear to be seeing now with Joe Biden. And that's not a word I like to use, corruption. But when you see so much foreign money coming into him, appears to be coming into him, to his family, and the Justice Department doing nothing about it, and also yesterday— apparently trying to sneak in a clause that millions of dollars in taxes are owed would be resolved with a uh, plea agreement, including, and besides that, also carrying a gun when you have a drug habit, all of which is a felony. That's bad enough. And then to find it that snuck in there was language that would have made him immune from any prosecution. And that includes a lot of serious charges that have been made. Now, it may turn out in the end that those charges add up to nothing. But they certainly warrant serious investigation. There are key witnesses, respected witnesses, career civil servants uh, from the IRS who claim that the investigation was stopped, that they were prevented from uh, going all the way from Hunter Biden to the White House in their investigation or to other Biden family members. So this is really unprecedented. And also the fact that the judge rejected the plea agreement on, uh, I guess it was on Wednesday, that the judge uh, rejected that agreement. Uh, I haven't seen that since Judge Sirica back in the Watergate days, when Judge Sirica rejected the agreement with the Watergate burglars, and that caused the whole Watergate situation to unravel and led to President Nixon's impeachment. So that's what faces the Biden administration now. And again, it's possible, John, that all of this could be answered. But if you're going to answer it, you can't be hiding, you can't be stopping investigations, and you can't be trying to sneak through tricky language in a plea agreement. Well, there, there was language in uh, one of the papers the other day saying that that uh, the White House was pushing uh, the special uh, uh, prosecutor to uh, impeach uh, or to uh, prosecute uh, President Trump uh, f- faster so their problems gets off the front page. You know, that's something, John, that ordinarily I would hate to say as you're talking about serious issues as an impeachment of the former president and an investigation of the current president and uh, saying that the Justice Justice Department was trying to sack it in favor of the Biden administration and against uh, former President Trump. But that's where all the evidence uh, indicates right now. 
almost every time something is going to be coming out on Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or somebody in the, in the Biden administration, it turns out that they come out with more charges against President Trump or more, or they leak out more rumors about President Trump. So I, uh, uh, you know, neither of these investigations should be politicized. The uh, investigations, possible indictment of President Trump and all the different states and localities, or a cover-up for Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or anybody in, in the Biden family. But you, know, uh, you and I have said that for democracy to prevail, people have to have faith in their government. Now, we know that things aren't always going to be perfect, that people are going to abuse power, but I've never seen it abused to this extent. I, I have never seen abuse where... Uh, the Justice Department uh, seems like they're only taking one side right now. And I grew up, we both grew up in a period of time when the rule of law, and uh, we were talking to Alan Dershowitz uh, that was shocked. He was shocked with the, some of the things that are going on at high levels. And uh, he was happy uh, to see that this judge was doing the right thing. I, I forget the exact words that uh, uh, he said that, uh, the American people uh, won or something, and uh, and uh, the White House lost. I mean, it's, it's just a fact of uh, of just having law and order. Yeah, I think that that judge, that she has gone a long way toward restoring faith or at least showing that the government can do the right thing. I think what, unfortunately, people had come to expect that she was going to rubber stamp that agreement, that a few Republicans in Congress would yell about it, and it would all go away. But instead, she went through that with a fine-tooth comb, she asked tough questions. Apparently, the uh, uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers got excited once. They were very upset. It was almost as if she had no right to be asking these questions. But a judge's ro a role in that is to make sure that the agreement is fair, that it's equitable, and that it serves the purposes of justice. And in this case, uh, she showed a number of things that really raised questions in her mind, and she was not going to rubber stamp it. Now she sent it back. And I think once it's sent back, the whole house of cards may collapse. The White House has to be incredibly shook up right now at this. They, they thought this would all be behind them. Instead, it could perhaps be just beginning. And that's, uh, God knows where this would lead. I mean, if any of these witnesses are telling the truth about $6 million coming in here, $5 million coming in there, about all these shell companies being set up uh, to insulate the, uh, you know, the Biden family, different members of the Biden family, if any of that is true, never mind all of it, if any of it is true, it raises the most serious questions about President Biden and also puts a real cloud over his candidacy for re-election. I mean, the Democrats, I don't think they're crazy about him anyway. They may have felt they have no choice. But now, with all of this coming out, you may see people like Gavin Newsom uh, picking up steam. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy's already in the race. And we may see other candidates from around the country start to emerge if it becomes obvious that Joe Biden cannot run again, you know, cannot run for re-election. And I don't think anyone looks upon Kamala Harris as being a, a serious backup choice. Uh, I think you're correct on that. Uh, anything else you want to say this Sunday morning to the American people? Well, uh, again, we should all be happy to be Americans, be happy to be New Yorkers, even though it's getting tougher and tougher to survive in, in New York. I mean, it seems like they're going full speed ahead on congestion pricing. I hope the new police commissioner, Eddie Caban, is allowed to do his job. I hope that the state legislature soon, sooner rather than later comes to its senses and changes the bail reform law. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, the things that you see and hear going on in the street, it's just this is not the New York we grew up in. I, listen, I know you can't go back to the past. You can't live in the past. But there are certain standards and values that should last no matter what. And right now, what you see in the streets of New York is not like anything 
we ever saw growing up. And, uh, again, I don't want to say we have to live in a paradise or nirvana or utopia, but uh, we need a lot better than we have right now where people are, are afraid to walk the streets, are afraid to take the subways. And probably the most uh, significant thing is they're afraid to let their teenage kids take the subway. That's when you know things are getting very bad. Agree 100 percent. Congressman Peter King, thank you. Have a great uh, rest of the Sunday uh, day, and uh, God bless you, and God bless America. I'll see you tomorrow afternoon, John. Thank you. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. With us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, and he uh, really brightens up our weekend by uh, letting us know of uh, things going on that we really can't control in the other planets, the sun, the universe, the galaxies, the Milky Way, and we have zero control over them, but it's interesting to know. Steve Cates, tell us what's going on this week. Well, good morning, John. Good to be back on the Cats Roundtable. Lots of exciting stories, and we will later get into a congressional hearing on UFOs, which is on everybody's tip of their tongue. We begin, of course, John, with the sun. Once again, on the far side of the sun this time, an incredible big CME blasted off the sun. And lucky for us, it wasn't directed toward the Earth. But here's what it did. It actually hit Europe's solar orbiter satellite and kind of knocked it out technically for just a little bit of time. This energy from the sun was coming out at 3.4 million miles an hour. And if indeed, John, that were to have happened on the front side of the sun facing the Earth, you might have had a repeat of the 1989 big Canadian blackout in Quebec. We can only tell people what, that the sun is just increasing in power. And there's another giant sunspot on the far side of the sun. Maybe that was the cause of the one with that big CME, but it's headed around the sun. Maybe we'll keep you posted on that one once it gets around the other edge. This is incredible stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll explain much, to you. It's amazing. How much damage did it do to that satellite, if, if any? Well, it temporarily blinded it, John. And, you know, in the, in the specifics, these protons just hit the sensors. It's a solar satellite that's actually there, you know, to image the sun. But indeed, if that were to have happened on the front side of the sun, we can uh, only expect some things that are not very nice because, obviously, we're so dependent on satellites and electronics today, and the sun does affect it. Well, absolutely, we're dependent on it. God forbid something happened to our global navigation system with those satellites, uh, we'd be in deep uh, trouble. We won't be absolutely. able to order pizza for, uh, on, the, uh, on the iPhones. Uh, you got what that else? Right. That would make people unhappy. Oh, make us hungry. And they, they wouldn't be able to deliver. They wouldn't be able to deliver it in, uh, in electric cars. But uh, there you go. What, what else is going on? Well, John, the big news, obviously, is this congressional hearing, of course, the House Oversight Committee. And I watched it, like many people, probably you did, too, from front to back, you know, watched it, a long hearing. And I wanted to make sure that I had as best information that I could. But my analysis of this is three very credible witnesses. Of all the three witnesses, you know, Ryan Graves, of course, Navy pilot, David Fravor, who was a commander of a flight squadron on the USS Nimitz, and then, of course, the whistleblower, David Grush, I was most impressed, I think, with his testimony. 
because he's actually saying, you know, even in between the things where he says the repetitive line that I can't discuss all that in an open session, meaning that they're supposed to go to one of these things called a skiff. But the truth is, he said a couple of times and verified that they do indeed have, quote, spacecraft, alien spacecraft. And also, when asked the question about who was piloting it, he said non-human. Now we have to figure out how we're going to get the truth on this. But this is still incredible, John, because we've never had hearings like this. You know, unless this is just a false flag operation, which I hope it's not. Maybe I don't we'll think some answers. Steve, I don't think it's a false flag. And I jokingly said, were they Cleons or Vulcans uh, as a joke? Uh, because I, I firmly believe that they do have beings. I have never seen them. I have never, I have not specifically heard what they look like. But I, it's been confirmed by very, very, very mm-hmm. high up, if not the top, top. Yes. Well, John, we're hoping, and everybody's hoping, who at least wants to know the truth, and that's exactly what we're after, after so long. Hopefully, we'll get some answers on this. But everything, imagine what those congressmen and congresswomen really know after going into these closed doors into the skiff. Let's just find out what the American people and the people of the world can hopefully find out. There's too much evidence, at least out there, to say that this is real, and we're just hoping that we get some response on this. But time will tell, John. We'll keep you posted on that. But we also want to talk about SpaceX here, a launch of a Falcon Heavy. This will be the seventh launch, and this is coming around the corner. It had a delay a few days ago, some technical issues that it got down to about 65 seconds in the countdown. But what's interesting on this particular Falcon Heavy launch is that this is the largest so-called communication satellite satellite ever put up. It's known as the Jupiter-3 Echo Star 24. That's a lot to say. It's a satellite, John, that's about as large as a commercial airliner which by itself is a big feat to get into space. But it's the largest Ka band satellite in orbit. What is that? That's a frequency in which communication is a very, you know, good thing between 26.5 gigahertz and about 40 gigahertz. But hopefully they'll get this spacecraft out there, the satellite, out to geosynchronous orbit. But the bottom line is low Earth orbit is so populated, now we're adding to the geosynchronous orbit, which is some 22,000 miles above the Earth, but still exciting, John, from technology to be able to get these big birds, as they call them, satellites, out into the universe. At one point, a lot of us were concerned that the uh, the explosions and the uh, whatever on the uh, on the sun were causing this heat. But it, yes. it, it doesn't seem like it might not be. Probably not. It's probably not, John. But I keep saying this, and you know, many people would agree with me. I'm sure that all weather comes from the sun. But what we see is kind of a buildup and a backlog. In other words, all this solar energy that's been hitting the Earth from cycle 25, it has caused some dramatic changes to the atmosphere. But the main culprit here, at least some climatologists and meteorologists, they're saying that there's been a big shift in the jet stream positioning here in the northern hemisphere. And what does that mean? It means that it's causing these big blobs of these stagnant regions like here in Phoenix. Good God. We're almost 30 days, John, where temperatures are above 110 every day. I get in my car and look sadly at the uh, odometer, and to the right is the thermometer. And every day around 2, 3 in the afternoon, it's at least 117 or 118. But simply, the big cause about this, even when we go back to the sun causing all weather, is that a change in the jet streams causing these big high-pressure domes that are kind of stagnant. And unfortunately, we're sitting on top of one of those, or one of those is right above us. But hopefully weather will change. But, John, here in Arizona, we had a great, you know, May, June, 
obviously the temperatures were extremely low. So there's something definitely going on. There is something going on, and uh, someday uh, we'll get a consensus of what is going on. Yes. Anything else to tell us? Any mysteries this week? Well, I was going to say this, John. The big thing, we move on to the live sky, because I know people tell me that they enjoy this. And what's the live sky? What you can see in the sky? Well, this is not a mystery, but this is a good thing. Over the weekend, as we move into the new month, August, we'll have two moons, that is full moons, in the month of August. They're called two supermoons. Why a supermoon? Because when the moon comes to a position called perigee, meaning when it's closest to the Earth, and it aligns up when it's full, we call that term from astrology, not astronomy, a supermoon. So simply, August 1st, you get a full super sturgeon moon, and at the end of August, you get another full moon by the 30th, and usually, not always correct, the second full moon in the calendar month is called a blue moon, though some dispute that title. But let's look at it this way. It's a beautiful name. The August 30th, it'll be a super blue full moon. So there's a lot of things. And the meteor shower, John, which we'll talk about next week, called the Perseids. If you look into the northeast sky from 2 a.m. to sunrise, one of the more active meteor showers, as long as there's not moonlight. So there you go. Always check out wabcradio.com Dr. Sky Experience for great information and as always John a privilege and honor to be here with you on the Cats Roundtable. Thank you Steve Cates for letting us relax a little bit on a uh, Sunday morning and be able to look up and and dream a little bit and uh, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. What is today is retired NYPD uh, police captain, Edward Mamet, and he just felt that uh, there was an injustice being done, and he wanted to talk, get it off his chest and talk about it. Eddie Byrne was executed. It was on February 26, 1988, and uh, they caught the, uh, the people, and uh, they went away, and uh, now they're being released. Captain Mamet, uh, tell us of the situation. We both had uh, a very, very good friend, Larry Byrne, uh, who passed away a few years ago, uh, and he was the brother. And every time I saw him, I could feel the sadness in his heart. Tell us about the situation. Yes, I feel very sorry for the mother. She lost her husband, who was uh, Eddie Byrne's father, who I worked with, Matthew Byrne. He was a lieutenant in the police department. Uh, the other brother that survived is an FBI agent or was an FBI agent. And Larry was with the Attorney General's office, and he was a good friend of John and I. Um, and he was also a first deputy uh, commissioner right. at the NYPD. He was in charge of legal legal matters, which interesting is his father was the commanding officer of the legal division when I was around, legal bureau. So it comes from a long line of police people. Anyway, back in 1988, Eddie Byrne, who was about 21 or 22 years old, was guarding a material witness outside the house, sitting in a, in a police car, guarding a witness who was testifying against a major drug gang in Queens. And he was, it was about uh, after midnight, and on the orders of a jailed member of that gang, these other people came up to him and just blew his brains out right while he was sitting in the car. He never knew what hit him. They were sentenced, and I think next month, the getaway car driver is going to be paroled. And this is outrageous because anyone who kills a cop should never be paroled. They should spend their lives in prison. Especially, and, well, it wasn't an accidental killing. It was, a, it was an execution. And it was planned from the jailhouse. The, the guy that was uh, already in jail 
he planned this. So it was like how they did it was very interesting. But this parole board that we have now is notorious for releasing cop killers. Uh, this is not the first time within the last two years or so, uh, quite a number of them. I guess the most notorious one was the uh, killer of the, you know, the Black Liberation Army killers. So we've got to do something about it. And uh, you just wanted to get it off your chest. And Larry Byrne, I remember he passed away a few years ago, and I remember having lunch with him like a week before it happened. And, and uh, I remember uh, whenever I go into that restaurant, I always remember him. But because all our police officers, they work so hard. And uh, when one of them is lost like that, it's just very, very sad. Anything else you want to say, Captain? Well, the most... The saddest part about it, he was such a young kid. He had his entire life ahead of him, uh, Eddie Byrne. And, uh, you know, he never got to see that. He was, I think, 21 or 22. And it was just a senseless murder, you know, terrible. Captain Mamet, thank you for everything you've done for New York and the NYPD and uh, for all New Yorkers. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to tell the story. With us today is Andrew Sabin. He uh, had a mission last week to save some... Uh, lion cubs. Uh, Andrew Sabin, uh, tell us uh, your experience and what you got, got accomplished last week. Well, it's, it's actually way before. This uh, started 10 months ago. I do a lot of work in Ukraine where I built three orphanages and delivered 120 ambulances. And I've been working with the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and I was feeding, basically supplying food and veterinary help for the people in Ukraine who had pets and needed, they needed food. And, and I get a call one day from my partner, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and said, look, we've got these four lion cubs. Can we get them flown back to the United States? The three of the four were found in a duffel bag at the train station in Odessa, Ukraine. These are now one month old. And the fourth one, was found by a roadside zoo, also a month old, in Kiev. And they, I was asked if I could help fly them back and get them to a wild cat sanctuary in the United States. And so I conferred with my partner and my jet company, which is uh, FlexJet, you, I assume, heard from them. And they have a European operation. And they had a G650 flying back from Warsaw, Poland, to Chicago. And so with their help, me supplying $50,000, IFAW $50,000, and FlexJet in kind, we flew the four Lions on the G650 to Chicago. From that point, they entered an air-conditioned, a heated van, and I don't remember it was winter or something. It was 11 months ago. Maybe that was it was warm then. Uh, or 10 months ago, uh, we drove them to Sandstone, Minnesota, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from Duluth. So on my way back from Colorado, I took my plane up to Duluth. I wanted to see the sanctuary. I wanted to see how these lions were doing the four. Well, they were cubs. I was amazed how well they're doing. They're now 11 months old, and I feel good about saving them. It's a really good feeling. Well, that is wonderful news. You know, I love animals. I love cats. I love dogs. Uh, and that is, you know, that, that it makes me feel good in my heart. 
Uh, I'm sure it does for the same as you. Have you done uh, similar uh, situations at that, saving uh, uh, oh, save four-line cups? Tell us. Give us another oh, adventure John. you had. <laughs> John, you have no idea. you got to come to my house and see my five pet pigs, too, when you have a chance. But, yes, I've been very involved. Um, a while back, we had Hurricane Dorian. Do you remember that? In the Bahamas, yes. there were hundreds, hundreds of dogs and cats branded on these islands they couldn't find out who they belonged to they couldn't find the owners i char i chartered seven planes and bought seven train loads of plane loads of cat and dog cats and dogs back to the mainland u.s and i distributed them to various shelters uh i've been very involved with saving wildlife uh, around the world uh, from earthquakes tornadoes everything and uh uh, that was actually my first experience with actually lions. It's mostly been uh, more common animals like uh, saving dogs and cats and things. Well, Andrew Sabin, thank you so much for coming on and telling about your experience. And, and I think you've done uh, God's work. And uh, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I will continue to do so. Thank you, John. We have uh, the great Bill Bratton, former NYPD commissioner, of course, also uh, chief of police there in Los Angeles and also commissioner in Boston. Uh, the great Bill Bratton. Um, commissioner Bratton, thank you so much for joining us. There is so much to talk with you about. Um, first off, um, you wanted to talk about this issue with the NAACP in Oakland, what's been happening, just the crime in California. And it's sort of indicative of what's happening around the country. Yes, uh, it, it made you aware of uh, a uh, press release put out by the NAACP chapter in Oakland, California. NAACP is the, one of the largest and most respected uh, uh, of the African-American uh, entities in the country. And the Oakland chapter put out a press release today that basically was a, uh, uh, a manifesto, if you will, about what has gone wrong in Oakland and what they think is necessary to correct it. And it's, if you read it, it's amazing because it's a total repudiation of what has been going on for the last over half dozen years in the country. I'll read you one quick paragraph out of it that uh, is uh, phenomenal coming from an African-American organization. Field leadership, including the movement to defund the police, uh, district attorney's unwillingness to charge and prosecute people who murder and commit life-threatening serious crimes, and the proliferation of anti-police rhetoric have created a heyday for Oakland criminals. If there are no consequences for committing crime in Oakland, crime will continue to soar. And it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like New York. That, uh, so I was amazed to see this document. Maybe there was some light at the end of the tunnel finally. Maybe. Maybe those. there's some common sense coming. Now, uh, uh, before uh, we found out, there was an article in the New York Post today that broken windows is broken uh, because uh, 2,500 fair beaters, 2,500 fair beaters have been caught, had significant higher uh, uh, warrants uh, on their uh, on them. And if we would have arrested them, we would have taken some killers off the street. John, in 1991, 1990, when I was uh, brought down from Boston to take over the transit police in New York City, we had uh, about uh, 250,000 fare evaders every day, uh, 
system of three and a half million riders. The crackdown and turnaround of crime and disorder in New York City began in the New York City subways in 1990, and it began with going after fare raiders. Back at that time, and I write about this in my books and wrote about it just most recently in my social media tweets, one out of every seven stopped at that time were wanted on a warrant. One out of every 21 stopped were carrying a weapon. The statistics that the Post is posting these last several days, they're even worse than back in 1990, which was the worst crime year in the history of the city. Those statistics in the Post are based only about a, on about 1 to 2,000 fair evasion arrests. We are not stopping enough fair readers. The department is trying, but we have district attorneys that refuse to prosecute for that crime. Uh, there's an old expression, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Well, the history of New York City, the crime turnaround for 25 straight years, began by going after fair readers. When will our district attorneys smarten up and recognize that when crime goes unpunished, crime goes up? One more item. I was yelling and screaming at the beginning of the show today that they want to build affordable housing by Seven World Trade Center, which is fine by me. But why don't we put in uh, police officers, uh, uh, firemen, uh, instead of them living up in Rockland County or 50, 75 miles away, I'd rather have them in the city. What say you? Well, John, John, the irony of it is uh, the majority, uh, more than 50% of police officers, I don't know about firefighters, but 50% live in the city. But increasingly, because of the high cost of living, and increasingly because the wages for a New York City police officer are nowhere near what is paid in the suburbs, uh, out here in Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk County, uh, Port Authority, their wages are nowhere near what are paid to the surrounding police departments. So we lose a lot of fine young men and women to surrounding areas for a combination of things. Schools that don't teach, housing that's too expensive, salaries that don't allow you to have a middle-class life in the city. All of this can be corrected, but it's not being corrected, unfortunately. You know, um, Commissioner, I wanted to ask you also, uh, this to me is just, it, it gets me so angry. Uh, the getaway driver and the person who was involved in the assassination of a young NYPD officer, um, Eddie Byrne, uh, as you probably know, it was a you know execution style. He was 22, had only been on the force for a month. Uh, well, the New York uh, Parole Board has basically said, um, you know, he should be granted parole. I mean, I, I, you know, to me, I think we need to send such a powerful message for anybody who's involved in a cop killing, especially something like this. It's an outrage. Uh, Eddie Byrne, his brother, Larry Byrne, worked for me as my deputy commissioner for legal matters, the late, great Larry Byrne. I attended many ceremonies in Queens uh, at midnight honoring the death of his brother, Eddie. I attended the Washington, D.C. memorials each year with Larry mourning his brother. The death assassination of Eddie Byrne actually was the catalyst for the beginning of the turnaround of crime in America because it was so heinous when a uniformed police officer sitting in a mock police car is assassinated by a yep. drug dealer. It was an execution. It was an execution. The country woke up. The idea that under Governor Cuomo and Governor Hochul, I guess the figure is actually over 30-some-odd cop killers have been paroled by their appointed parole boards. Parole boards appointed by our two most recent governors are letting these killers out at a fast and furious rate. Crime unpunished results in more crime. That's the reality of it. Well, if the PBA doesn't do something about it and put out a full-page ad, I will put out a full-page ad if uh, somebody helps me. Uh, right. Uh, because our, our, the people have to know. 
John, I think you'll find the PBA will be more than happy to work with you. They put out a phenomenal press statement. They go up and testify at these parole board hearings with the families of the deceased officers. But the parole board that's been in place now for the last, well, 12 years has been letting these cop killers out in the past. And well, I want to put a picture of them in the New York Post, who they are, where they are, and, and how they voted uh, letting these killers out. Bravo. Good for you. People need to know, John, because it is outrageous. Half of it, I think, is educating the public. We love our officers, and you got to stand by them, Commissioner. This is John Katzmatidis. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCradio.com. This is the Katz Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Katz Roundtable. And joining us now is Edward Caban. He is the brand new New York City Police Commissioner, the first Latino to hold that post. Commissioner Caban, we are so happy to have you here on the show. Congratulations. How's it going? Thank you very much. It's actually my honor to be on this show. I'm a big fan for a long, long time. Well, you know what? We're a big fan of you guys. I do, by the way, Back the Blue every night on my show at 10 o'clock. Uh, you know that John and I and everybody at, you know, at WABC on Cats and Cosby, we just love the police. What does it mean for you? You know, you rose through the ranks, um, really. And also you, you know, broke the glass ceiling there, becoming the first Latino. Obviously, it's such a huge, important population. What does this just mean for you personally and also your experience to bring you to this moment a very difficult time in New York City. Yeah, so it was an honor for me personally. I believe it's an honor for my family, an honor for my the Hispanic community. Uh, my swearing in on Monday, I was able to walk down the stairs of four priests and look at my father, and I could see the tears in his eyes when he looked at me walking down because he was so proud. He was a big factor in me getting to where I am as being part of a Hispanic president. New York City Transit Society, Hispanic Society, he fought for men and women like myself to get better assignments, to get better promotions. And now him being a cop, he gets to see his son be the top cop. It was a proud moment. That is so important for a father. And uh, the, the biggest challenge you have now is uh, uh, New York uh, with the new bail laws and everything like that. Uh, uh, is it working out? I mean, uh, uh, they supposedly got a little bit better. Tell us. So obviously that's a policy question, and we'll leave the policy to the policymakers. But, you know, I look back and I can tell you that when we're concerned about recidivism, of course we are. Unfortunately, that drives a lot of our crime. There also has to be accountability and consequences for those individuals that really should be our collective focus. Police, courts, prosecutors, we have the elected officials. Everyone involved in our criminal justice system needs to play a part in that, John. Is it moving? Are the court systems moving forward uh, better? Yes, they are. They're moving on way better compared to a COVID era. Yeah, no question. And everybody, we're talking to the current New York City Police Commissioner, Edward Caban. You know, uh, Commissioner, also talk about how important it is to back our men and women in blue. Um, you know, th there's been, I think, obviously, uh, sometimes divisions, or, and but I always think how important it is to bridge that gap. And I feel like the commissioner plays such an important role for people of all communities to understand just the importance it is and how tough it is to be a police officer right now in New York City uh, and any major city across America. It's, it's very tough nowadays, but I think the men and women in this department understand that they have a mayor that supports them. They have a current police commissioner that supports them. The previous commissioner supported them. 
the people out in the street support them. You know, I walk across these communities and this city every single day, and the stories I hear from the people out on the street about how they want our cops out there, how they believe they're doing a good job, that's so important to men and women of our department. And, and what's the status? Uh, are you uh, uh, at what level are you at? Are you are you a thousand short, two thousand short, and how how long before they come in? You know, so obviously we're always going to monitor attrition, but John, just take a good look at what we're doing. We're down in crime for the first time in years. We're down in subway crime. We're down in violence. Enforcement is up. The men and women of our department have taken 10,500 guns off this street in the last 18 months. And we've done that with less CCRBs. Let's stop questioning Frisk. Those are the men and women I want on my department, John. This is John Katz from TV's. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCRadio.com. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.